Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. This whole question of China and what it means to all of us uh, is a burning issue uh, and, and one that has been evolving over time, at least over the last 20 years and more. Uh, and today, I'm very pleased to be able to speak to someone who's written the most definitive book, um, you know, screaming out headline, When China Rules the World, uh, Martin Jack, uh, who is right now in London, and I'm here in Beijing. Uh, Martin, thank you very much for uh, doing this conversation with me. Um, you know, a lot has been happening and has happened since you wrote the book originally in 2009. You did an updated version of the book in 2012. You think it, uh, it deserves another update or maybe a sequel? Well, I think, um, you know, it still sells extremely well. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, the great thing about it is that um, I guess more than any other book in English, you know, it got it right. After this the 2012 edition, which was the second edition, um, I thought that any further changes required a new book because it was, the old framework was kind of bursting at the seams, really. And so ever since 2016, I've been working on a new book and I've written uh, about two thirds of it. And uh, I shall finish the first draft at the end of this year. So it probably won't see the light of day until 2023. But is that also on China uh, or yeah, something? On China. No, it's on China. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Okay. The interesting thing about uh, when China, a, a book with a title like When China Rules the World, is that uh, it immediately uh, polarizes its readers. Uh, the people who already believe what you uh, are, you know, are talking about in your book um, have a lot of uh, uh, substance coming out of it that, that supports what they think. And the people who don't, um, you know, uh, have all the reasons why your book doesn't actually provide the story. Was there a, a more nuanced way of writing a book like that? Or is it something that has to be written in stark terms? Uh, in order to, you know, to carry the message. Uh, when you wrote in 2009, the, the Western world uh, was still uh, very patronizing towards China. Even as far back as 2001, uh, the conversations I've had in, uh, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. was, oh, we are worried about the Chinese non-performing loan problems in 2001. Uh, you know, you fast forward that 20 years, and it's like, look who's had the financial problem. It wasn't China, uh, you know, and, and not just once, but twice. And, and today, the liberal West, which kept calling China communist and, and therefore dismissive of the, the, the groundswell support it its had of its own people, um, you know, they themselves, the, the liberal West itself is, is, is uh, on, in, you know, in being judged, uh, you know, because of uh, their own uh, problems and stuff like that. I'm sure that you've had lots of feedback and, uh, on your book. Um, is a book like that, um, you know, uh, judgmental and therefore polarizing? Or is there a nuanced way to talk about China? Well, I don't think that the book is uh, declamatory. Um, or um, assertive, and generally the way I write, is um, analytical and strategic. I'm also strongly minded, especially with the case of China. You know, you always must have a historical dimension. You've got to understand uh, the context. And I think that um, certainly in the West finds this very, very difficult to do, really. Um, it doesn't have a historical and a very strong historical view because it thinks history started with its own domination of the world. And so that it's got very little historical memory uh, before that. Uh, and this is, of course, a point in a sense of collision between China and the West because the, the Ch China, China wouldn't believe us in starting history, at, what should we say, the beginning of the 18th century, because it just doesn't, you, you can't make sense of China. I think that where I suppose it is dramatic is the title. And I, I regard the title to have been a mixed blessing. Um, 
in terms of impact, then it was um, it was quite it was an act of genius, really. It's a very very strong title. It works in English, but it in reality it doesn't translate well. Certainly doesn't translate into Chinese or Japanese or so on. The word rule uh, has got a particularly distinctive meaning in English. Um, what it does, you know, the rule in English uh, has a range of nuanced meanings, not just, you know, the strong one. But when it translates into, a, when it's in a title like that, I think people tend to interpret it in a strong way. So, so uh, the book is actually much more nuanced than that. I mean, what the book absolutely argues is that China will become the leading country in the world. In that sense, it will become the global leader. And the West, and I argue this very strongly in the book, is in decline. And actually, my book was often criticized for being too strong. But actually, if you look at historical events, even my book, which was at one end of a spectrum at the time, underestimated the speed, one, of China's rise, and two, of America's decline. I agree that your book is uh, nuanced uh, in terms of the substance of what China is, um, and the, the evidence that you put on the table, right? Uh, it's very nuanced. But the one thing you didn't do was to say what rule the world means. The title bears a, an approximate relationship to the content of the book. I mean, it, it is it is attention grabbing. But if you read the book, I never I say I, I say that China, of course, is never going to rule the world because no country's ever ruled the world and no country ever will rule the world. So to use that term in that sense, I'm taking poetic license. You know, I. I come from a country um, with, where there's a famous old imperial song, you know, when Britain rules the waves yeah. um, and uh, rule Britannia. Britannia rules the waves, you know. So the word rules, it, oh, there's a famous song, um, When I Rule the World, which has been sung by many famous singers. So yep. it's, part, it's part of the culture. So no one really thinks if someone's singing you know, if I rule the world, that they really will rule the world. So uh, a poetic license is taken with the term, and that's what I was doing. And the title is compelling. There's no point in having a book that sits on the shelves. You've got to, you've got to get people to want to buy it. And I think the title, from that point of view, was very successful. So one way of looking at the book's title is it was a political intervention. You know, it was a, an attempt to say, look, Something really profound is happening in the world, and you need to uh, and you need to re understand it. China is going to overtake the United States and, in a sense, usurp the United States. Also, unlike what the great majority of Western commentary was at the time, China is not going to westernize. It's not going to become a westernized society. It is not going to become like the United States or any of those liberal democracies because its roots are much deeper. And contrary to what Westerners think, this is a very strong political culture, not a weak political culture. And I think all my, all, all my basic propositions like this, I'm not saying everything I say in the book is, become, is true, but broadly speaking, those are two of the main things. And they've all come true remarkably in a period uh, since 2009, when the book was first published. And I would add to that the other thing, you know, which is that I say that the westernization has reached its climax and is now in decline, and we will see the growing sinicization of the world. In other words, the growing influence of China in a range of different ways. First and foremost, of course, economic, but not just economic. We can see this. And and so, so these were the these were the three central propositions, if you like, in the book. Well, the thing is that 
um, <clears throat> even if you meant it as poetic license, uh, it, that is exactly the question being asked right now. What should uh, rule the world be? What is rule the world? Um, you know, and 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 everyone around the world uh, is looking for a definition that that is relevant to themselves. The burning question, as it were, is uh, what should uh, China rule the world mean? What are the elements of that? And if we if we um, drill down to each of these elements, um, you know, there are lots of debates to be held, right? Uh, economic. Uh, you know, is it just being uh, the largest economy absorbing resources from the rest of the world? Um, China has done very well, uh, as you point out in your book, that uh, it reduced the cost of technology. Um, you know, it, it eradicated poverty within uh, its own borders um, and, and provided a model that other countries can uh, can copy. Um, uh, you know, those are elements of rule the world. Um, you know, so are, are there new ideas that you've thought about? Um, you know, that we need to be thinking about that that makes it a little bit more substantive. You know, I think the best way to put it um, is that the rise of China is the rise of a new kind of modernity. Um, a modernity expressed in economics, in politics, political institutions, culture, cultural forms, um, the nature of the society, the nature of the family, and so on. The rise of Chinese modernity is an extremely wide-ranging and um, comprehensive uh, uh, transformation and challenge. And it seems to me that what's happening is that, and this is not understood by and large, uh, that this is is going to change the world in a very, very all-embracing way. So, so, um, and it's inconceivable, for example, that if you have a country which represents a bit under a fifth of the world's population and is clearly going to have by far the largest economy for the, you know, for, for the foreseeable future, not forever, but so on, then the international system as we know it um, and its institutions uh, cannot be sustained. That, uh, and, and th this is something the West uh, doesn't understand. In fact, if anything, you know, there's this very powerful resistance to it, you know, more articulate and aggressive resistance to it now and this feeling in the west of you know the threat of china and the way the kind of the music's changed uh in the trump and post-trumpian uh era uh towards china um but the truth is that you know i just think china in a broad in a broad way represents a superior economic system to that offered by the United States. Remember that China is, you know, in a process of change. This is not the finished article now of what China's going to be. It is um, a dramatic, you know, historical dynamic. That's what China uh, represents. Now, we have been to this place before, in a sense, not as dramatically, and that was the rise of the United States uh, in the 19th century. One of the things I want to be able to do with your book and the substance of your thesis is to apply that to some of the issues that China is facing today, right now. Um, you know, and it's got uh, its economic growth, uh, it's, which is stable, but it's sort of uh, come right down from 12 to 6 and, you know, 3, 4 percent. Uh, but last year it looked very good despite uh, COVID, but uh, slower growth, right? Um, and then uh, it's got a number of uh, geopolitical issues. Um, it's trade with U.S. And actually in the substance of its trade with the U.S., what China is saying is that uh, we still want the U.S. to buy from us. And if you don't buy from us, uh, it's going to affect our economy. And the U.S. is saying that uh, we need you to buy from us too, um, you know, uh, and stuff like that. And then... Um, because it's a strong economy um, and because it's a large economy and as any large economies uh, can inadvertently end up doing, it's like they end up sort of 
you know, bursting at the seams of their neighbors, right? So, um, you know, they've got border problems with, um, with the Southeast Asian countries, uh, Laos, Cambodia, the, the rivers flowing through, the dams being built, uh, and there's a lot of negotiations that need to take place there. And of course, uh, there's, the, there's this whole issue of Xinjiang. Um, now, I don't want to deal with any of these issues, um, you know, in broad screaming headline type of way. The, each of them have got substance um, that speaks for China as much as it would the, the West. Um, now, how would you apply um, your, your book uh, when, when you open the newspaper in the morning and you read some of these issues coming out? What would you like to see China do? Uh, what would you like to see the West do? Um, you know, it, it shouldn't be just capitulating that, you know, that China owns the South China Sea. Um, uh, that's not right. Uh, but at the same time, uh, what needs to be the give and take in, 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 in uh, accommodating China? Well, uh, I think that is a good question. I think that um, at some, over time, uh, the world needs to arrive at a, a modus vivendi with China a way of living. Um, now, at the moment, I, I see, uh, well, you've got to look at the world in, you can't just say the world because different parts of the world are responding in different ways. So I see in the United States, and it's also, for example, in my own country, the UK, uh, a regression. The United States has come to see uh, China, uh, uh, starting with Trump, but of course, there's broad support for this position in, the, in America, that China is a threat to its position in the world, it, 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 its geopolitical position. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, there's a kind of quite fundamentalist rejection of China, absolutely zero attempt uh, to understand China. I mean, China became communist. I mean, it was like the Cold War again. It's a denunciatory label. It has no understanding of what the China, the Chinese phenomenon really is. You know, you can't start with 1949 if you're going to understand China. You've got to understand Chinese civilization over a much longer period. So it seems to me that and, and, and once we once there's some understanding of this, I think, then relations can improve a lot because then, you know, you're not fighting a zero sum game, but you're trying to understand China just like China tries to understand the West. I mean, China has a much better understanding of the West than the West has of China because China's the new kid on the block in the present era. And it, 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 it's had to make sense of America, understand the way. America works. That doesn't mean it's got perfect knowledge, otherwise it would have seen Trump coming, and it didn't, basically. And this is not just true of China, by the way, this is true of East Asia. East Asian countries, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, and so on, they all have a much better understanding of the West than the West has of them. So I think that what we need is a process of, um, of, uh, a, 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 a much greater and deeper uh, mutual understanding of uh, of both the affinity, uh, both what they have in common, or the affinities, and also uh, the differences. Um, and I think that the the West needs to do is to really try and embrace a notion of what China is. Try and understand China uh, in a different way. At the moment, you know, basically the position tends to be on our terms. And the international order, the rules-based system, oh, come on now, what do you mean by that? I mean, America's never observed uh, the rules-based system anyway. So, it, it, you know, it, it's always uh, been a privileged country because it basically kind of owned it or rather governed it, that the international system. So, so you've got the, 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 the international system is going to be, is in the process of being fundamentally uh, now, that doesn't mean that China is going to boss the world. I don't expect, quite frankly, China to behave like the United States because its history is very different. Um, that's not really the Chinese way. Um, China's much more keeping itself to itself in a way, whereas the Western tradition, because it 
America gets it from Europe and then sort of accentuates it, is to run the world. So, you know, looking at it historically and contemporaneously, I think that what the West is criticizing in a way with China is a fear that China's going to be like the West has been. And, you know, I don't think that's the case. Now, it is certainly going to do things in its own way. Um, and we are going to have to get used to that because the Chinese are not going to become Western. They know a lot about the West, but they're not going to become Western. You've said that very clearly in your book. And actually, those are the useful ideas in your book, which is, um, you know, if, uh, if a country as large as and a civilization as large as the Chinese or China is, uh, is not going to be like the West, then what is it going to be? Um, you know, um, at the moment, uh, the institutional infrastructure on which China is ruled today, uh, given the fact that the dynastic order has now passed, uh, is an old form uh, political, you know, rails, as it were. Um, you know, the, the Communist Party, the, the state, um, you know, uh, they actually borrowed concepts from, from the West, uh, you know, to hold everything together. And, and uh, the one very important um, um, theme in China for the last 2000 years is holding it together. The emphasis on, on unity was always far more important than diversity on, on uh, you know, um, creativity and all that. Um, you know, and, and, and when the dynastic order ended, um, they, were, they needed a new, you know, form to hold it together. What are some of the institutional uh, changes or institutional um, evolution that needs to take place for China to keep building what it's building right now? Because um, to some extent, and we saw that during the pandemic, which was um, there was a need to hold it together at the same time to have information from the ground come up and reach up, reach the leadership uh, so that it can be progressive in its uh, reaction to the pandemic, to, um, to the economy and all of that. Um, you know, uh, and yet the, the institutional form is fragile. Um, you know, it's, um, uh, it's still in its formative stage uh, for what it is today, uh, or, or so it seems. Um, you know, what is your take on that? Well, I think the system is not fragile. Um, I think the system is very strong. But it depends exactly what we, what we mean by the system. Francis Fukuyama, in his, one of his two volumes, he makes the point that, that uh, the governance system in China uh, displays a far greater continuity than any other governing system in the world. Before uh, 211 BC and the, the Qin Dynasty, basically the, the, the forms of governance of China remained essentially the same. I mean, of course, there are some big changes, huge changes have taken place, but what is fascinating is just how much continuity exists. There are some very, very strong affinities between the Communist Party system since 1949, the party state system, and really the imperial, the imperial tradition of China. Um, and, and so uh, well, it, through profound changes and so on, China has managed to get uh, to, uh, you know, to, to where, it, where it is now. now you, you made a point, I think, extremely important point, which is that because China's, because China's so vast, um, then its biggest problem has always been unity and stability. How do you do that in a country which is, you know, the size of a continent? Far, you know, four times the size of the United States, uh, um, you know, far bigger, far, far bigger than Europe and so on, both physically and... Uh, and, and, and demographically. And the Chinese have internalized something very important, which is that uh, for them, the worst periods have been the periods of instability and the best periods have been those of stability. China's political values are basically unity, stability, order. 
And those are the internalized values of the Chinese people based on their own historical uh, experience. Now, so, so if we want to make sense of China um, and, and we've got to deal with China, we've got to respect China, then you, you can't immediately controvert those principles and say, no, what you need is Western style democracy. No, no. We must respect and understand China. And this is very important. You see, people say, well, you know, the problem with a communist system uh, or autocratic system is that, you know, they're inflexible. They're inflexible. They are unable to change, unable to change. I mean, what is extraordinary about China is that a very big country, which has existed for way over two millennia in its existing forms, it's gone through good periods and bad periods, but it's the only civilization in the world, I would suggest, which has risen in its history. We could argue whether it's four or five times to, 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 the, to be the adv most advanced or one of the most advanced societies, economies, cultures in the world. So oh. this is that. So I would argue that China is a very resilient culture, and it is capable of reinvention in a remarkable way. Now, when the West thinks of choice, it thinks of it like a general, the next general election. You know, Jews, does anyone really think that as Britain declines, Britain's going to one day reinvent itself and occupy the same position in the world that it did in the 19th century? Most unlikely. Most unlikely. In fact, it's fragmenting. That emphasis on unity, on holding things together, uh, has a price to it. In fact, uh, in the business community in China, uh, I've heard, uh, I've heard uh, you know, the... the the, the technology guys say uh, something very interesting, which was uh, that we outsource creativity to the U.S. And the U.S. outsource production to China, you know. Okay. So, so they they sort of you know take that reverse role. And being here in China, I, I meet young people, uh, you know, who are very conscious of their personal rights increasingly, right? And um, you know, we we have to uh, show our health um, app uh, everywhere we go, uh, and they're concerned about the data being collected and, and so on. So you see, a, and and the education level here, ironically, uh, is very very good. As you say, many Chinese know exactly what's going on in the U.S. They have a good global perspective, uh, and so on. Um, you know, and, and that it's exactly that knowledge uh, that is making individualism an, an increasingly important uh, character of the Chinese young person. When you take it back into a historical context, China was ever only very creative uh, during uh, its most disruptive periods, you know, the, the warring states periods, the, the time of the three kingdoms and so on. And the Song Dynasty was known for poetry and, and, and um, you know, and, and, and good pottery and stuff like that. Um, so, and I'm sure it's a phenomenon any, in any civilization that times of peace, um, you know, uh, does not necessarily uh, mean there's, there's going to be breakthrough. In fact, I would say that um, the one thing about your book is you're rather very, not being Western, I'd say you're, you're being very dismissive of uh, Western civilization, uh, like, like it's in a permanent set of decline, uh, a stage of decline. And in fact, you just, met, you just you know, stated it again uh, in this conversation. Um, you know, one could argue that, and we've seen this taking place several times in the last 200 years, you know, the, America had to deal with Germany, had to deal with Japan, it had to deal with the US, uh, with the USSR, uh, and then now China. So, you know, it's um, defeated every phenomenon um, uh, of, of uh, holding up against it, um, you know, over the last 200 years. And the biggest thing about um, American corporate culture is that it's actually ruthless with itself. Um, you know, when, when you think about the fact that 5G uh, has not taken off in America yet, the, the main reason is there are several telecommunication uh, companies competing with each other, all of them needing to raise capital, be profitable. Um, and until that one breakthrough comes, uh, nobody changes. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a rat race kind of thing. And that, that rigor uh, is what defines 
capitalism, the way the Americans have uh, built it. Whereas China has got two telco telecommunications companies, uh, both state-owned and both complementary, uh, and, and it can plan, you know, uh, five years, 10 years, 15 years ahead. You know, so, so we, we, we are looking at something that's potentially complementary at best, um, or, um, you know, contradictory. What is your take on, um, you know, on the, on the phenomenon of uh, Chimerica, um, you know, Niall Ferguson's um, idea? Um, you know, do you think that such a, a, a theme can evolve over time? Well, uh, in a sense, it did. Uh, between um, 1972 and uh, 2016, um, with a growing uh, codependency uh, between the United States uh, and China. Um, but uh, at least for the time being, uh, this has fallen apart. It's not going to be put together again in the near future. In the longer run, I think that would be a strong possibility. Um, but the only the, the, con the precondition for it is that the United States comes around to the view that it must treat, treat China as an equal partner in the world. Uh, that, that, that is a precondition for that situation. But what about the other side of the precondition that China should also um, you know, meet its own obligations to the WTO's uh, original arrangement? Isn't that a two-way street? I think by and large, China did meet its obligations to the WTO. I mean, you know, as, as it was agreed with China, I mean, it's not that China's been in serious breach of what it, it, I mean, it was classified as a developing country, quite correctly, given where it was at that stage in 2001. Um, and um, if you look at, um, uh, you know, the judgments uh, with regard to China, I mean, chi China's actually, uh, uh, relatively speaking, better than both the United States and Europe in terms of its behavior by uh, uh, WTO uh, judgments and so on. So I don't think China is the bad boy and everyone else are the good boys or the United States is the good boy. I mean, I, I don't think, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's true. Is China to America what Japan was to the UK? And there's one perspective which I would, you know, put out for, to you is that the UK originated the idea of the Industrial Revolution, um, you know, started the process going and, and Japan perfected it. And, and it was really a beneficiary of the Industrial Revolution. And in fact, as the Industrial Revolution uh, declined, uh, so did Japan. Uh, and then now you find that uh, the US is, uh, uh, is the originator of the digital revolution, uh, you know, the network uh, revolution, and China is a child of it. It perfects it because it has the, the, the size of the population. Chinese society is a highly networked community, and, and, the, and the internet um, you know, facilitated that and, and brought that to life. Um, you know, uh, you know, would you draw parallels like that between West and China? Well, clearly, um, for a long era, um, for uh, speaking economically, I mean, the West has been um, the main innovator and the main leader, starting with Britain's Industrial Revolution. And then this becomes shared with uh, other European countries and, of course, the United States, which rapidly uh, overtakes uh, the UK. Um, and, uh, and then uh, eventually the rest of the world uh, gets the number. I mean, and of course, most importantly, Japan, after the media restoration, um, you know, it, it, it was really the only country outside the West that managed to um, industrialize in that particular era. You know, I think this is a sort of basic pattern that that in any in any historical era where the most advanced culture or society, you know, uh, that that then rivals appear and then they obviously have to learn from and borrow what is the state of the art, which is what the previous uh, leader or hegemon. Uh, achieve. And I think that's true now that the rise of Asia, uh, East Asia in particular, um, has been based on learning a lot from the West. And the rise of China clearly 
you know, was achieved because it learned a lot from the West. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't, in the process, innovate itself. Um, you know, I, I, I'm absolutely uh, averse to this proposition that, you know, all the, all the Asia, East Asians can do is to imitate okay. the West. The fact of the matter is that, um, that even though a lot of the technology uh, was Western technology, um, when countries like, you, you know, the, the Asian Tigers, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, etc., first started on their path, you know, to do it, to, they, they produced a new economic model uh, to make this work, uh, which did involve the state and did involve uh, a tremendous emphasis on export markets. Um, and, and so they made up a new way of doing it. I mean, China is extremely innovative. Uh, and the reason China is extremely innovative, in my view, um, is because once you do what Deng Xiaoping and his uh, 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 colleagues did from the 70s and achieved this kind of economic growth rate, then what you do is you turn the whole population, uh, the mentality of the population becomes highly innovative. Because if you're growing at 10% a year, as they did until you know, 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, that means your economy is doubling in size every seven years. That means not just the economy, but people's lives are being transformed. You know, every aspect of social relations are being tr transformed with tremendous speed. And people have to adapt to that, learn to um, carry it. China's very innovative now, as, as people know. In, in many areas, and I think that, that that will become more innovative in lots of ways in the United States. The United States is very, very good at certain things, tremendous, and, and historically it's got a, a great record. Um, but I think that uh, uh, China um, uh, and East Asia, well, particularly China, if in the context of our conversation, uh, is, we, it, it is going to be a, a great innovator in the coming period. But of course, in some areas, it's still behind. I mean, you, a, a very good example is the vaccine. They produced uh, at least two very good vaccines, but um, they're not as innovative as Pfizer in, in technological, biotechnological terms. Um, so that's an area where you can see China is still behind. But there are lots of areas now, we, we wouldn't have said this when we we're having this discussion when my book came out in 2009, where China is now the leader. Would you be... Uh, a little bit too dismissive of uh, what the West really is um, and what it has contributed to humanity as a whole. But, um, you know, when I think about the UK, um, I think about the way in which um, the structure of the state um, was finally um, given good institutions, uh, the separation of powers, the, the judiciary, the, um, you know, and, and the executive and um, if you if you if you superimpose China uh, against the UK model, it's a it's a great administrative state, um, you know. But the representative state uh, is something that um, you know it's still working on, um, or maybe it's re represented in a different way. I mean, I do believe there's a huge sense of representation in China because uh, there is support from the ground up. There's a trust in the government and so on, uh, but. Um, you know, it's essentially an administrative state. Um, and at some point, uh, it's going to start needing to deal with three elements, the, the state, the individual, uh, and the corporations. Uh, in fact, um, the, the corporations that have given China its impactus in the last 20 years are the private sector corporations. Uh, in fact, there the are speeches uh, given recently that uh, that reveal that they paid sixty percent of the of the of the tax in the country, um, you know, and then you have the state-owned enterprises, and there seems to be a move towards um, absorbing uh, private enterprise back into a state-owned uh, structure, you know. Now, when you think about how institutions evolve in 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 state term, uh, whether you know in statecraft, uh, you know, whether it's in the UK or in the US and China, do you think there's a kind of an evolution that all of us need to start thinking about and, um, you know, and give it a shape. Um, and in the U.S., although it says that it's, um, it's a democracy, uh, it's become a lot more like a plutocracy because you've got extremely, um, you know, uh, wealthy individuals uh, being able to dictate, um, you know, uh, trends, uh, you know, right down to how vaccines are being, um, you know, are being delivered and, and stuff like that. Uh, in other words, they become uh, influential, uh, another, another institution that didn't exist in the past. 
you know, um, uh, do you see China in those terms? And if you see them see it in those terms, how would you describe China uh, in institutional terms? Well, I I see China as work in progress. Um, you know, if you're changing at the speed that China's even now still changing at, then uh, you know, I mean, it, it everything is subject to very rapid change in China, and that is still true. If you go from a country, you know, which 40 years ago, uh, 80% of the population was lived in the countryside, uh, to a situation now where probably around half or a bit over half uh, are now urbanized, uh, that's a phenomenal speed of change, which requires huge shifts in the nature of governance, um, as well as uh, the economy. Um, so we'll see huge changes in China. Um, but it's not going to westernize. It's not going to adopt a Western model of governance. In fact, the question, the point is, why should it? Why should a country which has uh, uh, undergone the most remarkable economic transformation in human history um, in, on, within this governing context, why should it abandon that governing context? I mean, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, this, the, 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 the transformation has given the present uh, governing system great support and great legitimacy in China. But if it sits on its laurels, if it stops innovating, if it stops moving, then it will get into trouble and it will it'll stagnate. Now, I don't personally expect that to happen, but of, of course it's, a, it's always a possibility that for one re reason or another, um, uh, that could happen. Um, I, and I think that you're underestimating the degree of crisis that exists in the West. I mean, the United States, would we really have been thinking in terms of uh, five years ago of a serious threat to and crisis of democracy in the United States? And I think that America, there are deep, deep problems in the United States, which I do not think uh, that I would probably, I probably, probably veer slightly to thinking that they're irresolvable in, within the existing context. Um, and uh, now I think it'd be better if they were resolvable, but I'm not convinced. And the re, the, and, uh, the, what are the problems? You, well, you've mentioned one, which you had a democracy, but now you've got something more like a plutocracy. Um, uh, you've got a situation where, you know, half the population for about 40 years have not seen any increase in their real living standards. You've got a growing polarized, uh, growing polarization in America um, with a huge gulf by and large between Republican, the Republican bloc and the, the Democrat uh, bloc with the worst since the Civil War. So I'm 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 concerned about uh, what's happening to America and and how it's going to move beyond this situation. And the fact of the matter is that you know it's obviously you know the the, the political system in America and the Constitution has worked very well, but it doesn't work well now. America has always moved from crisis to crisis. You know when when I looked at what happened in the last two years. I said, wait, this is the 1968 replay. Um, you know, um, a black guy gets killed. Um, you know, there's street riots. Uh, exactly the same. Um, you know, Martin Luther King was killed in 68. And it just went on in a crisis that carried right up to Nixon in 73. And, and uh, you know, and, and then there was the so-called Great Depression. And before that, there was, uh, you know, a stock market crash in, in the early 1900s. Um, and, you know, even the Federal Reserve Bank was, was, was formed uh, as a result of a war, you know. And, uh, and then the country was born, uh, you know, uh, out of a conflict with, with the UK and so on. You've got to put this in a different, in a, in a proper historical context. And that is... That the extraordinary thing about the United States was more or less from its uh, from the the, um, the Declaration of Independence and so on, uh, 
the United States was on the rise in a way that I don't think any other country in the world has managed to probably, certainly in the modern era, has managed to achieve that. And, uh, and the problem that America faces now is that since probably the 1980s, uh, as the world changed, as other countries, you know, Japan and so on, uh, uh, and earlier, uh, began to industrialize, then the America's weight in the world has declined very significantly. That's very clear, right? And that's something that America is not, um, you know, entirely absorbing, which is the rest of the world has caught up. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the decline of America, but uh, America has to deal with a world where, you know, uh, the forces are beyond its own control, um, you know, of which one of which is China, um, you know. And what I'm trying to put in context here is uh, your criticism of, uh, of the West. Um, you know, are we, are we um, you know, pushing the needle way on, on towards, uh, towards one side? Uh, where we are very um, apologetic towards China and very, you know, uh, presumptive as to what it's capable of and very dismissive of what the West is today. Oh. Are we kinder to China <laughs> than... And, and, uh, are we too kind know. to China? Um, well, we're not very kind to China at the moment, that's for sure. Um, uh, we're very... Uh, we're hugely critical in the West now of China. If you're asking me, you know, what's the West achieved? Uh, well, the West changed the world. It was yeah. essentially the West that created the world as we know it today. But just because, but you've got to understand history doesn't just carry on in the same way. It's not just a process of incrementalism, that ch history goes through great changes, profound changes. So you said, well, uh, America's not in decline. No, it's in relative decline. The proportion of GD, global GDP that America accounts for is much smaller than it was. So the world is in the process of major transformation and recreation. And so we have to, in that context, understand the importance of China. You've said it very well, because I think that's where uh, your thoughts become useful um, you know, and, and applicable. When we think about what China needs to work on to not lose the momentum, uh, do you fear that this so-called rise of China has several phases to it, you know, that, that it, will, it will plateau at some point and then, you know, it needs to absorb the, the, um, um, the, the massiveness of the, the, the changes that is taken place. Is there some uh, creative self-destruction that needs to happen in the process? Yeah, I think that all societies uh, need that. There was a very big change that took place in China uh, with, uh, in 2012. Um, and uh, from the Hu Jintao, Hu Jintao era to Xi Jinping, but also from the Deng Xiaoping era in a broader sense, from 1978 to approximately 2012, and then the period since. And that has been a big change in China. Now, uh, the West almost is, uh, doesn't like uh, Xi Jinping and so on, but I think we've got to try and understand what was happening then. I mean, China was never going to just carry on being an economic phenomenon, which is how it was and how it saw itself. I mean, you know, uh, uh, hide your capability, you know, don't show leadership, uh, get on very well with the United States, who are key, key precepts of uh, Deng Xiaoping. But as I argued in my book, you know, China will become... As it, as it grows, as it rises, will become a formidable political, cultural, military, you know, player. And that is what is happening. And every country that rises in history has in some way or other, according to the era, uh, gone through, through that process. And I think that, that this is an example. Now, one of the problems of the, in the Hu period was that there was a sort of, and this is greatly underestimated and not talked about, but there was clearly a sort of growing uh, dissatisfaction, corruption. Remember corruption in society? Yeah. Uh, this is very important that, uh, during this period. And people were getting disillusioned. Um, and so there was the big uh, anti-corruption campaign with Xi Jinping. This was a big political shift, no question at all. I also think the emphasis on the Communist Party, as opposed to just government, was 
important because clearly the, the feeling was that they lacked some of the levers that were necessary. I mean, you know, there's a very important point that uh, Lucian Pai, the American sinologist, makes, you know, which is that whereas in the West, the basic kind of political configurations in the modern era have been between left and right, in China, it's never been like that. The big, the big tension that lies at the heart of the body politic in China is between centralization and decentralization, which relates to the problem, of course, of political stability and unity and so on. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, I think that we must expect that um, many things are going to happen in China. I mean, if it freezes, it will, <laughs> everything will come to a, a, a halt and it will decline. I don't personally expect that to happen. I expect big changes to happen. But we've got to understand those changes. We've got to understand China. Because okay. changes will not be recognizable in a Western form. Why did Japan decline? And, and why will China not decline on those terms? Well, I, I, but by the way, look, I, I've never said that China won't decline. I mean, I do expect China to be the predominant power in the world for many years to come, but not indefinitely, because at some point China will go into decline. That's what will happen, just like it has on five, six, seven occasions in China's history. That will happen again, because new, com new contradictions appear, new conflicts appear, you know, uh, institutional crises and so on, um, and China will, uh, China will not be able to deal with them successfully, and China will go into decline. Just like I'm arguing, although you're, you've been a bit resistant to it, that, you know, America's in decline now in global terms. Uh, will it rise again? I can't tell you whether the United States depends whether it can surmount those, that, that decline and deal with it in a satisfactory way or whether as a result of it, this is always a possibility, the United States might fragment. Who knows? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do think if you're looking at a longer term history, you have to be cognizant of these things. If a Chinese reads your book uh, and, and thinks about um, his own self-perception, uh, something that I find, and, and I grew up with Chinese people, so I'm very familiar, and, and you know, you, you've had that in your family too. The thing is that Chinese people have a, a certain self-depreciating character about themselves. They, they have a chip on their shoulder. They, they never think that they're good enough. And I've seen this, um, you know, at, at a very personal level, family and so on. Um, and the, the one thing that Chinese people keep repeating is that, you know, we will not be humiliated again. Um, you know, do you think that that age has arrived where they need to snap out of that and, and get on to it with, um, you know, taking uh, their place in the world and, you know, and, and, and not using that as a crutch to, to explain why they need to be a lot of things today. Well, I think that um, there are two strands rather than one strand to the Chinese personality. Uh, one is what you describe, which is uh, self-deprecating modesty, humility, um, and so on. And uh, that's very strong. Uh, amongst the Chinese, um, uh, they're not pushy in that, in say a Western or especially American way. They don't speak with a very loud voice, as the Americans, not just the Amer American Americans, but Americans speak with a right. loud voice. That has to do with their, that's to do with their sense of authority in the world. That's one side of the Chinese. The other side of the Chinese, as you well know, is this tremendous strength that they feel from the success of Chinese history and Chinese civilization. They know that their culture has been, is a very sophisticated culture, which has, you know, in the, in the Han period, in the Tang period, in the Song period in a different way, in the Ming period, and even in the early Qing period, China has been you know, hugely important and successful. So they have a mixed view. They look at history and they say, we can do it. And they look at the recent history and say, well, we're having a go. Well, at some point, uh, you know, this whole thing, I mean, just, just taking the theme of your book, uh, you know, when China rules the world, like, okay, we are here, you know, and uh, 
um, we have responsibilities. Uh, you know, the funny thing about ruling the world is that uh, it is not a position of prestige, it's a position of responsibilities. Uh, you know, um, uh, anything that happens anywhere in the world, there will be a Chinese resolution to it, which is, you know, China as an economic engine, China as an aid giver, China as a technology builder, you know, all that. But keeping keep going back to this whole idea of we will not be humiliated. Uh, and the fact that every civilization has been humiliated at different points in its, in its history. Should there be a sense of confidence, uh, which is, you know, uh, which takes it to the next level, which doesn't exist at the moment? Or, or is this thing about we will not be humiliated a crutch uh, that is used as an excuse for, for a lot of concessions that they get, um, you know, from the rest of the world or from the Western world, actually? I think that it's perfectly understandable given their history, especially the century of humiliation and so on, you know, the period from 1800, as I would date it, to, to 1950, uh, that the Chinese feel, um, you know, that they, um, yeah, that they've, they've had it tough, they haven't been successful, um, you know, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, they've definitely been done down, you know, during that period and so on, uh, by, by uh, West and so on. Um, but I think you're underestimating the, the new generation in China and indeed the confidence that uh, the Chinese leadership shows in its own capacity. This is a very, this is a very, very competent leadership, um, remarkably so. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that because with all China's problems, of course, we know, we're very familiar with the fact that statecraft is, you know, the Chinese historically are probably, you know, invented statecraft uh, effectively and, and, and are, are enormously competent at it. Even when they've been poor and in a difficult position, uh, they, 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 they've shown a, a great deal of, uh, no. of ability uh, in that area. If you're uh, 40 in China, you were born, roughly speaking, uh, with Deng Xiaoping's beginning of his reforms. So you, you're, a, you're a, most of China uh, are creatures and um, um, born into that period. And if you're, if you're, let's say you're 20 now in China, then you, you know, you, you were born in 2000. And what you've seen is a, a very successful economy and a remarkable transformation uh, in living standards and opportunity. And so there is a tremendous buzz and confidence amongst young Chinese people, which you yeah. can see. You, yeah. you can, in fact, you're in Beijing, yeah. you can see this on the streets. I'm familiar with that. In fact, I'm representing that generation when I say, um, should they have a new voice? Uh, because uh, the official voice is, um, is a defensive one. Uh, and you're right, the, the new generation have not seen any of this. So they don't understand uh, the language of having been humiliated and all that, uh, and they need that new voice. Would they would they find that voice if they read your book? Um, you know, and uh, and and what would that be? Uh, you know, uh, the, the sense of confidence. Uh, that that was my question actually. Yeah. I'm trying to look for the applicability of your book to current things. Yeah, I don't come from a Chinese studies background or anything like that. I just got interested in it um, much later in my life, as it were, and. Um, so I had no history or reputation when my book came out. At the end of June 2009, it was published in America in November 2010, and the Chinese had it out in January 2010. Uh, and, it, and, and it's been very, you know, it's, it's sold. I mean, worldwide, I don't know how many it's sold. It's over 400,000, which for a big book like that, serious book, is a, is a great sale. You know, of course, there's lots of voices that make up what's happening in China today, but you know, I think the book had an important voice for China. Absolutely. Um, you know, it needed to break that Western mindset at that point in time, uh, which yeah. was dismissive um, and, and self-appreciating and all that. So I think uh, a book with a screaming title helps to help to uh, you know, dictate that. Uh, and the purpose of my conversation with you was to try and apply that to current day realities, issues, um, and, and see whether you could still hold the theme, uh, you know, when you think about China and some of the conflicts it gets into with, with its neighbors um, and some of the issues that it's uh, struggling with internally. 
um, you know, and, and not shy away from that, um, you know, and, and then to, to, to see what the substance of it is. Do you have new thoughts coming in in terms of how we need to think about China as a, as a phenomenon? Um, and I think the one question that everyone asks is that China and me, um, you know, it's, it's not China for what it is, but China and me as a Brazilian, China and me as a South African, uh, China and me as an Australian, um, you know, and, and uh, um, you know, what is it that I need to take into account? I think uh, up to this point, uh, a lot of China's uh, interaction with the rest of the world has been trade. Um, and, uh, uh, and on the economic front, because it's a huge consumer of, of global resources, but as the economy stabilizes or it, it slows down, um, you know, that, that interaction has to become more sophisticated, uh, more nuanced, um, you know, and more mature. Um, and it'll be good to have an idea of how, what that means, um, you know, uh, going forward. Um, and, and actually, China has a pre precedence, and, and you're familiar with Southeast Asia, you're, you're familiar with the original tiger countries. Uh, they reached the plateau and then they sort of... Uh, um, leveled off, um, you know, um, uh, several of them have uh, middle income uh, country problems, uh, things like that. And, and going on to the next level seems to be an issue. Um, and the question is, uh, will China get to that point? Um, you know, how, does it have the institutions to deal with those issues? Um, I think it's, it's time that uh, those of us who are serious about China, uh, uh, not just discuss China uh, in 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 uh, big term uh, big terms, but uh, more in substance. Um, you know, and uh, it'll be good to see how all of that evolves. And one of the things in your in our conversation is uh, the institutional reforms. What will China have to teach the rest of the world uh, in terms of the institutional reforms that will be willing to take into uh, take take into take in place um, that that the rest of the world can learn from. I mean, and here we, we go back to your country, which is the UK and, you know, the Oliver Com Cromwell revolution and, and the building of the institutions, um, you know, that the UK gave the rest of the world in the last 200 years. Um, you know, what will China's contribution be in those terms? Uh, you allude to it, but, um, you know, uh, it'll be good to see you give more substance to that. Read my next book. And with that, thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.